0: Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Steven Maggi.
1: You might not think a lot about the music that Bobby Hart and his uh, partner, uh, Tommy Boyce, put out. And yet that music was really the soundtrack to the 60s. A lot of things we saw as children on television shows, listened to, groups we followed, music all came from them. And we have the pleasure of having Bobby Hart on, who wrote a really interesting book we want to talk about called Psychedelic Bubblegum. Bobby, what an interesting time and what an interesting story you had. Do you get a lot of people that come and ask you uh didn't you write this or didn't you write that, that kind of thing?
2: Well, sure. Uh, we we get that from time to time, and most of the time I can say yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about your career first of all, because I find it really interesting. It all started where you listened to the radio and wasn't crazy about the DJ. Uh, kind of explain what happened there.
2: Well, I, I grew up uh, really influenced by music and loving music and uh, knew in, in my heart of hearts that I wanted to that's what i wanted to do with my life something to do with music but i was painfully shy as a kid so i figured well disc jockey i can sit in a darkened room and, uh, and and nobody will see me and i can still be a a star in in my in my hometown or whatever but uh, when i so i came over to go to to los angeles to go to the don martin school of radio when i was 18 and right away i got sidetracked into thinking hey i i think i can be a recording artist because you know the whole the whole uh, music scene had changed and it wasn't like the first half of the 50s, where you had to be a trained kind of uh, voice to even compete. Now rock and roll had come in, and Elvis Presley was happening. And uh, this was 58, so so uh, I, I, I broadened my horizons a little bit and said, hey, I can do this. And I had a yeah. record deal within four months of Hidden Town.
1: It changed, and 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 the music was something. I guess you just. Uh the change of the music from the stuff we listened to in the 50s to rock and roll with Presley and stuff, you just kind of got caught up with that.
2: I loved it. You know, I was listening to country music up until then uh, because I didn't really resonate with too much of what they were calling popular music. But then uh, then Elvis hit the scene and uh, everything changed and we had the rockabilly stuff and then we had the the uh, doo-wop stuff and uh, the black music that was crossing over for the first time and being heard by white audiences, and I was in love with all of it.
1: It was an incredible time. It really was the first thing, really, of integration of cultures, which we didn't see before, and I think rock and roll was one of the really instrumental parts of bringing that together. Was it something that was pretty easy to pick up once you started listening? You said you listened to country before. Was it kind of Easy in your mind to integrate all that as you started thinking about writing songs.
2: It was because you know rockabilly was was a cross between country and uh, and and uh, and and rock and uh, and and the doo wop stuff. I loved when I was exposed at first to the the black music in Phoenix, Arizona. I had to you know they didn't have it in my local record store. I had to drive to the black section of, of Phoenix and I had to listen to the the one black station in town to hear this stuff. But it was only a couple of years before it became mainstream. And uh, but I had a real connection with both both country, and uh, what they called race music in the beginning, and it became R and B.
1: Did you have albums like you know the Chuck Berry stuff and all that, Little Richard, and all that kind of
2: Absolutely. thing? Absolutely. I, I got a, a a job when I hit L A uh, in '58, printing record labels, and so I was exposed to. Uh, I had a, the record pressing plant was right next door, and I could go over there, and I could get the. the <clears throat> the overage that they had stacked up in the back and I could I'd get free free uh, records on specialty. I I had all the Little Richard stuff and uh, and the Richard Berry and the Chuck Berry and all the berries.
1: <laughs> so where does the songwriting come in? Where do you finally get the big break that puts you up there? It's really to a, a whole nother level.
2: Well, as I said, I wanted to be a recording artist and I was working at that and I was having records out every uh, every few months, but they were all bombs for about six years. But in the meantime, actually, before I even started, my first record producer, before he signed me, I played him something and he said, well, you sound pretty good, kid, but I'm only looking for people who have their own artists, who have their own material, Let's go home and write some songs and come back and see me. So that's what I did. I didn't never had done it because he told me to do it. That was, I said, well, this is the next step. I want to get a record deal. I better do it. So I went home and, and wrote and then demoed uh, three or four songs and took them back to Jesse Hodges, my first guy. And and uh so he signed me on the basis of that and uh, during those those 6 years of uh of you know famine if you want to call it yeah. that of, yeah. of not having any any uh any success but i was you know not thinking about it but i was honing my craft during that time i was getting better so uh i was learning how to write songs and and then we, I, when i teamed up with Tommy we had we had success as writers uh Several years before we did as recording artists.
1: Yeah, I love talking to songwriters like yourself because it's something I simply can't do. But I love the music. Tell me a little bit about the process. some of these ideas come up in your head, and you, you sit down, and then and then partnering with somebody, you know, and, and making beautiful music together is incredible. Uh, and is that just having a, kind of a meeting of the minds? you, you know, what does that all entail? Yeah, uh,
2: collaboration is uh, well. There's two two parts to that question. Uh, the the process. It, you know, when when we got into it, we were just, uh, you know, eating and sleeping and thinking songwriting, so we were always, we always had our ears open, we, we, well, there's a line, there's a title, there's something that, that I just heard you say, me write that down, or something that I just heard myself say, you know, so we always had the notebooks going with the titles and the lines, and you're just thinking of it all the time, and we're picking up uh, Cashbox and Billboard magazine, and we're, we're analyzing, oh, here's the top 100, why is this song a hit? I, Maybe I wouldn't have bought this record, but I want to know why a lot of other people did. So it just becomes your life. And then when it gets to collaboration, it was uh, just a stroke of genius that Tommy and I had paired up. We were really different in a lot of ways, although we were the same age and the same height and build and weight and all.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing you guys. You did some uh, situation comedies and so forth, uh, you know, and, and- as singers, you know, and so forth. And yeah. I, I remember that. It was it was kind of cool. Did did you enjoy doing that? Because uh, I, 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 I distinctly remember that, I think, I want to say Bewitched and a couple of other things as a kid and seeing these guys, wow, these are pretty good.
2: <laughs> it, it was fun. We, uh, when we re-signed with Screen Gems Columbia Music, which was our music publishing company, but it was owned by Comedy Pictures and Screen Gems TV, and we re-signed uh, after three years of being with them and, and had had... The Monkey Hits and so on. They offered us uh, not only to write for them, but they offered us our own record label and um, to develop a television sitcom for us. And that's that's what they began doing. And so they put us on all the shows, uh, guest starring on uh, Flying Nun and I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched, as you mentioned, yeah, uh, all the shows they had running on screen jumps at the time.
1: Well, you know, what's, what's funny is, and as I thought about it, your book is, I love the title with bubblegum in there, and I think people, because of that, might have think of that, but they don't realize you guys wrote some songs that had real feeling. It hurts so bad. It's a great song. You know, <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, so it, it isn't all just about some quick bubblegum stuff you know, that the Brady kids are going to sing or something, right? I mean, there's a lot more to this. I mean, you had some stuff that's really strong.
0: Uh,
2: that's kind of one of the reasons we we titled the book, as we did, because we kind of got pigeonholed as bubblegum producers because of the o- young audiences we were writing for with the monkeys and so on, even some of our own records. But uh, when Tommy and I got signed by Screen Gems and came back to California in 60, 65, um, we, were, we were hit right in the face with this whole new musical culture that was going on out here and and what we were exposed to on the Sunset Strip and at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and it was music they were calling psychedelic music so we began to uh, integrate uh, certain uh, elements of that into our into our production so i said it might be more accurate to to call the music we were making in the in the second half of the 60s psychedelic bubblegum
1: yeah I, I love that and it is kind of an interesting combination and you guys kind of were on all sides of the scene because at the one time you are talking about the like, that case the you know, the urban scene, the upcoming rock music, but at the same time you're doing some of the stuff that people are seeing on television and so forth. must have been kind of interesting, I mean, in, in your songwriting ability. Was it something you could kind of separate? Do you have like two different tracks, or is it just uh, the same process both ways?
2: Once we started uh, recording ourselves as recording artists, uh, we were doing it all. We were doing the writing, we are doing the producing uh, ourselves and others. We were Uh, Touring and we were uh, uh, promoting causes that we believed in. It was uh, a very hectic but very uh, fulfilling uh, time in 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 our careers. And uh, and working with Tommy, you know, we didn't pair up because one of us was a great lyricist, the other one was a great uh, melody writer. We both had done, we both had worked on our own so long that we both did both. So the reason we paired up is because we were friends, and because it was so much fun to write to. Each other, just bouncing off and, and uh, being good friends. And
1: well, yeah, talk yeah. a little about that time, Bobby, because it must have been a lot of fun. I mean, to be on top of the world in the rock world at that time uh, had to be a blast. But I guess it, you know, as your book talks about, and we won't give away the entire story, but it's kind of a two way street, right? I mean, a lot of fun and so forth, but with that comes uh, some uh, difficulties.
2: Well, it's, uh, as as uh, I think it was George Harrison who said uh, that, that uh, we we gave. We gave the fans our music, and uh, I forget the quote, but it had to do with nervous system. They, they would, in the process, we lost our nervous system. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's just a lot of, a lot of uh, pushing and pulling at you constantly. Everybody wants uh, this or that, and uh, trying to do it all uh, does take uh, an emotional toll. And yet when you run on stage and you've got 25,000 kids screaming and mouthing every word of a song you wrote, that just made it all worthwhile and then, and the energy comes back so it's like you said it's a two-edged sword but one that that uh, we'd, we would never regret in a million years
1: well yeah and, and i imagine like, trying to have a relationship and so forth, it's got to be tough because you, you're getting women literally throwing themselves at you you know for, for you know people.
2: Really? I know I, I didn't I didn't see any of that no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah
1: okay I know you guys didn't miss that. you know because cause how could you not i mean it's it's just it's right there and uh you know <laughs> what a temptation my gosh
2: so, yeah definitely and yeah so and and I had this this uh the spiritual side which i well, was very strong in my childhood and then I kind of put it on the shelf during these these days of of uh, hectic activity, and uh, I needed to pull back from that activity at some point and and, and reawaken uh, my my spiritual journey. And the book it uh, covers part of that as well as you know.
1: No, it, and it's a very important read. I mean, it's not just about the music, and it's so important. But I I think it really tells the story of um, you know not just uh, you and uh, Tommy, but also. Really, this whole rock world at the time, there was new things going on, and the drug scene was huge and so forth, and, you know, again, it, for guys like you guys that actually lasted, you know, are still around, you know, at some point, you got to address it, and it's really an interesting story. I want to talk to you about the monkey, so, because, you know, people that weren't around at that time probably don't realize what a phenomenon it was, and, you know, we all heard the stuff like, oh, you know, it was a fake group and stuff, but the music was real, and quite honestly, that music has lasted t- through the years. Tell us about that, because was it a question where Kirshner and so forth had come to you guys and, hey, let's put some music together? Because, you know, they were a bunch of guys that just were kind of, you know, kind of a fall group. They didn't really exist, and yet the music was real. Yeah,
2: they became a real group. We didn't, uh, actually, Kirshner was uh, was our, our boss, at the, the high boss at the publishing company, but he was in New York, we were in L.A., we were getting all of these opportunities being sent out. Um. in the L.A. office because we were out here where the music and television industry was. So that's how we got to to write the theme song for days of our lives and for a number of other television and and movie uh, projects. So that was just another uh, interview that we had. when We went over to the Columbia lot and met with the producers of the Monkees television show. They said, we're getting ready to do this show. We're going to cut a pilot and it's going to be uh, American Beatles on television and we need this kind of music and you guys can produce it and so on and uh <clears throat> so we we saw that was that was uh this was a big opportunity we've had we'd had a, a bunch of success but this was going to take it to another level as we saw it because the combination of television exposure to music was uh was not you know hadn't happened very often but whenever it had like Ricky Nelson and so on yeah it, it was gangbusters so we worked on the project for about a year and uh really developed the concept of how the music should sound and decided that we would use my band that I was playing clubs with in the evenings instead of the regular wrecking crew L.A. studio musician guys that everybody else was using. And We did use them extensively on other projects, but for the Monkees, said, let's make this sound like a real band because it is a real band.
1: Yeah, and I think that came across. And as you know, as weird as the concept was, it really worked. And I mean, these songs—well, you guys outsold the Beatles, didn't you, in 1967? Which is unbelievable.
2: The Beatles and the Rolling Stones, both.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. It is incredible. Did you work at all with the guys that actually were in the group? You know, Davy Jones and uh, those folks, the Peter Tork, whatever—the four of them.
2: We did. We decided that uh, we, we, at the beginning we we thought we'd really hit the double jackpot between uh, Mickey and Davy's voice as lead singers. Everybody in the group can't be a lead singer in our uh,
1: right. uh, estimation.
2: So Mickey has one of the, the preeminent voices of the '60s, and and Davy was great for those uh, for those certain songs that we wrote for him. That was he had a sound that was reminiscent of that uh, or that group that we had all been watching so closely called The Beatles, and yet it didn't sound like them. Yeah. So it was just in all the other English groups that were happening it's from the British Invasion. So he was perfect for those those slots. And we tailored songs to, to the two of them, mostly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, I know eventually they all decided they wanted to be a real group at one point. Uh, did you follow them all the way through, or was it just in the early days and then... Uh They took over. How did that? No, it
2: it was a happy surprise for us when they pulled the coup and and said, "No, from now on, we're going to produce our own records." Because they, uh, well, number one, they continued to come back to us for material, so we had we had songs in every Monkey album. But it gave us the opportunity to um, to accept uh, uh, one of the offers we were getting to become recording artists, which is what we had wanted to do since since we started.
1: More with Bobby Hart, who was once part of the singer-songwriting team of Boyce and Hart. Together, they produced three top 40 hits as artists, and the duo is also well-known for its songwriting for the Monkees. This is Vegas Never Sleeps.
3: Hi, I'm Gordy Brown, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Everything is expensive right now. Gas, food, you name it. You're spending more, you're making the same or less money. So, what do you do? You rack up credit card debt, that's what you do. It's not your fault, it's the economy. And guess what? If you rack up too much credit card debt like some of us, you can't pay your bills. Then the credit card companies, as nice as they are, start hounding you for money. Then you start your downward spiral. A smart thing for you to do is to call the Zero Debt. They can help you consolidate all your credit card bills into one affordable payment. Millions of people have done it. It works to make you debt-free. Make this free call right now. It costs you nothing to
0: learn more. 800-284-1349. 800-284-1349. 800-284-1349. That's 800-284-1349. Attention timeshare owners, call the timeshare exit hotline now. We can help you legally
1: get out of your expensive timeshare contract. If you're fed up with the maintenance fees, learn how you can terminate your timeshare legally and permanently. Call right now for your free consultation, 800-803-5449, 800-803-5449, 800-803-5449. 800-803-5449. Now you can get
3: generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steelman Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus.
0: 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. That's 800-870-3609. Take the
1: last
0: train of Foxville and I'll meet you at the station You can be here by 4.30 Cause I've made your reservation Don't be slow I'm a no no I'm a no no And I don't know if I'm ever coming home
1: We are talking with Bobby Hart, one half of Take the singer-songwriting team of Voice and Heart. Together, they wrote more than 300 songs and sold more than 42 million records. One question before we leave the monkeys, though: uh, "Last Train to Clarksville." Actually, wasn't that kind of modeled off because you guys misheard a Beatles song, right?
2: Yeah, I was pulling in, uh, pulling home into the carport, and flipping through. The, I'd been flipping through the the music stations, and I heard um, KSHJ was playing just it was just a fade out of uh, the new Beatles song called Paperback Writer. And uh, so I I heard paperback, and I thought they were saying, take the last. So that was all I heard until the next day I realized, well, I said, well, that must have been a song about take the last train somewhere or something.
1: And there
0: you go.
2: (laughs) The next day I realized it had nothing to do with taking the last anything to anywhere. So Tommy and I said, well, that's, still a good title take the last train to somewhere so we that's that was that was the genesis of it
1: did you have to be careful because there was a lot of music being produced at that time and so forth and you know like you said there were certain sounds and so forth you have to have a uh, c- concern that wow, we don't accidentally pick up somebody else's thing, like kind of like what happened to George Harrison. You mentioned it before with "My Sweet Lord," where you know for a while, and I think he was vindicated on that, but they were saying that he had stolen the song unintentionally. Yeah, from- that can
2: happen because you don't you don't do it intentionally, of course. But you know, there's all this stuff is in the air, and uh, you, some of it might come out. Uh, fortunately, we never we never had a plagiarism suit, and never had any any trouble along those lines. But the great punchline to the George Harrison story is that he 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 lost the rights to his own song, My Sweet Lord. Right. But then he ended up, he lost it because they said it was too close to uh, He's So Fine by the Chiffons. But he ended up then later on buying the publishing company that owned both of them. So he not <laughs> only published his own song again, but he published it. He's So Fine.
1: You know, you guys were were great in your in your own sense. Were there anybody that were heroes to the two of you? That boy, you know, we, we loved their particular style at that time.
2: Yeah, we loved all of it, and like, as I said, we we analyzed even the things that we didn't love, and we learned to love the things that we uh, we wanted to know why things were hits. But uh, certainly, the British invasion was fun. But uh, and when they, especially when the Beatles began to uh, to really. So quickly evolve into not just doing cover songs and, and the trite music of the beginnings of their careers, but this this breakthrough kinds of music that they were doing, that the Beach Boys were doing, as I mentioned, the the new groups that were that were doing uh, the, the stuff on the strip. Uh,
1: well, you know, things like Sgt. Peppers yeah. and Pet Sounds, were you guys playing these things and trying to really, you know, what, what have they done? Because it was different at the time. I mean, it's, it made a whole thing of FM music, uh, really, you know, this whole idea of album-oriented rock came from those albums.
2: It made you stretch. It's, just, it's always a good thing to be able to, to to stimulate yourself to go beyond what you've done in the past.
1: Did it give you a little more freedom in the sense that now songs didn't have to be two and a half minutes, for example? Yeah,
2: exactly. I remember going to a New Year's Eve party at Jimmy Webb's house, and he took us upstairs during the evening and played us at MacArthur Park, which he had just written, and it was just unbelievable orchestral. Yeah. You couldn't couldn't categorize it or pigeonhole it.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and I guess that was another thing, too. The whole idea of the sitar, all Mm -hmm. all the stuff George Martin did, that freed you guys up, too, right? Because now you could think out of the box.
2: Yeah. And yeah, so we we would take those influences, but also t- try to stretch it beyond what they were doing, and it kind of, everybody was kind of feeding off each other.
1: What about your own career, you and and Tommy, uh, your own uh, performances and so forth? Anything that was particularly the high point for you guys that you found that you thought, man, we were on top of the world right now?
2: A ton of high points, but uh, I'll just mention a couple uh, when we played the Grand Ole Opry, because Tommy and I had both grown up listening to it every Saturday night as big country fans in, in childhood. And when they asked us to come on the Opry stage at the Ryman Auditorium, it was just an unbelievable thrill. And, uh, and then uh, being able to use our, uh, our celebrity to do things that we thought were important when they asked us to be the national spokespersons for L U V us Let Us Vote campaign to lower the voting age to 18. The the war was still going on. People were eighteen year olds were being sent to Vietnam with with no recourse as far as uh, being able to vote for the politicians who were making those decisions.
1: You know, and I'm so, glad you brought that up. I wanted to talk with you about because it, it it reminded me. You know that old Barry McGuire song about you know you can you can go and die over in Vietnam, but you can't vote. Yeah. And, and this was really the this is what did it now. Was it just something you guys really believed in and, to, you know, to have that opportunity to, Yeah, you know, and, and I mean it was really a lot more, we hear a lot about Rock the Vote now on MTV, but in those days you didn't have that and yet this was much more effective. You got it done. Got it done with
2: the help of uh, with hundreds of thousands of, of, of kids who, and, and others who wanted, who saw the value of it and, and the, the just uh, justness of it. Um, and so, yeah, we we made it a big part of our careers. We talked about it from the stage. We talked about it in our press interviews and in our radio interviews. We went to Washington D.C. and walked the halls of Congress and spoke to the congressmen and the senators. And uh, you know, it it happened. It you know, when we started, we nobody was thinking. Well, uh, we we didn't know that would we involve changing the Constitution, when we found out, we said, well, how hard can that be? You know, <laughs> yeah. We got it done.
1: No, you know, And the cool thing about it is you look back, it wasn't a left issue or a right issue. This no. was something, yeah, it was kind of, uh, it should be bipartisan. It just made a lot of sense. It was,
2: sense. yeah. That nobody was against it. The politicians were happy to have more. Or voters,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it was just a different time. But uh, what, what a great thing to have as part of your career. I, I thought, you know, and I didn't realize that until your book came that you guys were so involved in that. You know, I was a little kid at the time, part of that sure. time. And it just... Uh, it's got to be a, a really great memory. Are, are you still involved in issues like that, that kind of thing, at, at this stage? Uh,
2: not so actively, but I, I stay aware. And I, you know, I I, uh, I don't feel it's my place to go out there talking about it. But 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 when when I'm asked, I, I have an opinion like everybody else.
1: Yeah. No. I, I I like that. Tell us a little about what you're doing now, because you're still involved in the music business, right? It isn't like you're retired, right?
2: I'm not, well i've been doing the book for we uh, worked on this book for about five years and now we're out promoting it so that's taken the uh, the, yeah. the bulk of my time now uh, as far as uh, music writing i'm not doing a lot of it because it's a different different kind of a business now i it's not like there's a yeah the, it's not like the publishers there to get your songs recorded but when if, i have a, a when I have a uh, um, a commission. When somebody calls and says, I like you, I need a lyric for a melody that's going to be in a movie or something like that, then I do those kinds of things.
1: The music industry, though, we've talked to, uh, like, Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind & Fire said just to, over their time, it's completely different. I mean, so it, 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 would you have uh, – how, how do you think you would have dealt in this world? Because it's so much different with YouTube and so forth. I mean, does it shock you to see the changes that have come to the music industry?
2: I don't say it's shocking, but it's certainly revolutionary. Um, I just feel like I was uh, fortunate to be born in that time, in between, where there was no such thing as copyright protection, and you know, in the, back in the back in the day when the, there was wandering minstrels and they would hold out their hat or whatever, and and I uh, was in that time where yes, music was protected because. It only makes sense. People give up their lives. They don't have to work a day job. They can, they can get actually get re, uh, paid for what they for the years of time they put in to learn how to write good music. And now we're back to holding the hat out again. You know, you don't <laughs> yeah. get paid for music anymore. People expect it to be free. So the only way you can make money is to go on the road.
1: Yeah, and it has to be really hard. You know, I guess it's a two, another one of those two-edged swords, Bob, because on the one hand, anybody can throw stuff out on YouTube, you can get discovered and so forth, but it's not going to be so easy this time. Uh, the whole idea of a platinum album and so forth, you know, we don't talk about that anymore. As you say, it's all about the touring, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that and the downloads and the downloads are uh, falling way behind what would be able to make somebody be able to live on that that money when they're just starting out. So you don't you don't have the opportunity to to learn and have years to learn to to get better at your craft.
1: Well, what do you think about today's music? I mean, I you know, it's it's frustrating to me cuz there's so little rock now, you know, and I don't know if it, it it's I don't think it's ever going to die. I hope not. But, you know, the, the, it's just kind of all fragmented. What's yeah. your take on music today?
2: Well, the good thing about it is uh, is the fact that there's so much diversity and that you can get uh, you know, that part of the reason that my book has is, uh, is, is stayed in the top 100 uh, on Amazon is that that there are even young kids out there because they, they can be exposed to it on YouTube and other places on, online. Um, so they discover all kinds of music out there from the 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up. Uh, and the unfortunate part is that uh, there's not really a good platform where you can go and make make money from doing that.
1: Do you have anybody that's coming to you and saying, I want to do a cover of your song? Because I can see the stuff you guys have. I can see people trying to maybe take a different take on it. There's some great lyrics and so forth in this music and places where they could play with it.
2: It's always gratifying uh, to hear uh, the cover versions and always wonderful surprises when you see Cassandra Wilson doing them, not just um, doing uh, Lester to Clarksville in a jazz style, or seeing uh, the Graskills or Lester and Earls Scruggs, doing a bluegrass style of the same song. I mean, it's just so much fun to watch that happen and uh, and uh, to see uh, the Disney movie uh, Monkey Kingdom, which came out this year and using a uh, theme from the monkeys as the opening credits. Those yeah. are all wonderful surprises.
1: Well, and it's got to be nice, too, because as a whole new generation of people hearing your music, and you might have people, hey, that's a great song, not yeah. realizing it's been around for a long time.
2: That's right, and they still show up in commercials and so on, which is always wonderful.
1: Yeah, well, and I have a feeling that show is it's almost going to be part of history. Uh, I don't think we're going to, you know, as long as there's networks out there like TV Land and so forth, yeah. you're going to have it out there. <laughs> <It's>,
2: <laughs> the the monkeys television show has been running continuously somewhere in the world, you know, for 50 years now.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And your music will be played, uh, you know, I see it long after we're all gone. Uh, they'll still be playing your music. It's incredible. A uh, couple of last things. Um, me, uh, meditation is something you're interested in. Right. Uh, is that something you found, like, post-career, or did you find it earlier in your career? When when did you get into that? that? Yeah,
2: I came in the middle of the career uh, where um, I got. Uh, I heard about what, what our recording engineer was telling me about uh, TM and... and uh, and the Maharishi and so on and I got to meet him and, and began doing TM for, for a number of years and then in 1968 my, my friend Barry Richards gave me a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda and that book changed my life and I became a devotee of Yogananda and uh, that's a big, big part of my life even today.
1: Well, you know, and it's fascinating because that was a big part of the musical this this whole industry and so forth with the Beatles and so forth. Mm-hmm. You, do you think it was just a matter of because the industry, like we talked about before, was just so crazy, so much going on that it, it's only natural that you had to have some way to control it.
2: Yeah, so counter counterbalance, right? Yeah. Right, right. I think you're right about that.
1: Well, and the other thing you're doing too and people need to know about is you, you do some public speaking out there and uh, you've got obviously great stories and so forth. Are you enjoying that? Do you like going out meeting people? It is
2: fun. You know, like I said, I was kind of uh, out of the public spotlight for the last 30 years or so and uh, really having a lot of fun now in this last, just this year of, of being out there and meeting the fans and they're so appreciative. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I go to... These uh, signings, and you don't know if anybody's going to show up. You see, people bringing records that uh, that meant something to them in, yeah. in their earlier lives or whatever, and bringing pictures to sign. And uh, it's just uh, it's been a uh, really a lot of lot of fun and very gratifying for me this year.
1: What a fantastic career! This book is psychedelic bubblegum. You got to get it. It's a great read, especially. Well, well, actually, not even, I mean, I was going to say, especially if you grew up in that era, but even if you didn't, to really understand what goes on, this is just a great feel for what the culture was like and uh, the world of rock music and, and how you got through it. And it's a great story about uh, Bobby's life as well. Uh, one question we did have, though, from one of our listeners when I mentioned you were going to be on, I got a couple of emails from people that want to know. If you had to pick your favorite songs that are out there today, some of the stuff, or artists or so forth, who are your favorites that, that are around uh, these, these days?
2: You know, I, I don't listen nearly as much as I used to. I, I used to have the radio tuned to the Top 40 continually, but I, I really like uh, Happy by Pharrell, and, yeah. and, I, and I, like, uh, I love Taylor Swift's stuff. She's a, she's a great songwriter and artist.
1: You think that's partly because, uh, Bobby, again, from what we were talking about before, because this stuff is so fragmented, they don't have these things that we all listen to. The way, like, when your music was out, you know, millions and millions of people were listening to this every day.
2: Yeah, and now now people listen to what they want. They can go and they can find an internet radio station that plays only the genre they're interested in. It can be as obscure, you know, as uh, as they want it to be, and uh, and it's not going to be... Mainstream, like like you said, top 40 radio was. Uh 20, 30 years
1: ago. Well, you know, and the one thing that's bad about that in my mind is I love classic rock. I love listens to I like to go on the deep in the albums and so forth. But uh, the, part of the problem is you go to these classic rock stations and I know people that listen to and they, they, and I guess it's the same for other you know, things. They hear the same songs. You never get that, you know, and you kind of lose track of that. And you you kind of want to stay involved. So you kind of lose a little of that because it is so fragmented you got to really hunt to find new music.
2: It's true, yeah. And, uh, and 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 mu- new music will always they'll, it'll always be out there in one form or another. Like I said, going back to the wandering minstrels and before to, yeah. to the to the primitive tribes beating on drums and dancing, whatever. <clears throat> yeah, there was, uh, it was the music has always been with us through the, through the biblical times up to now, and um, there'll be good music that makes it to the t- the cream will rise to the top. It's just a different delivery system and uh, a different way of uh, looking for what inspires you.
1: Well, we got to get a hold of the book. It's psychedelic Bubblegum. And Bobby, now if we want to find you online, do you do any of the social media stuff?
2: Uh, yeah, there's a they, there's a, there's, a, there's a, my website is bobbyhart.com, dot com, and uh, I'm on Facebook uh, and uh, you know so look look forward to hearing from anybody or or comments or.
0: Yeah,
1: well, we'll go on there and search you, find you on there, and uh, follow you. Thanks so much for being with you. I had a blast today, Bobby. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it was very, very uh, uh, much fun, and uh, look forward
1: to talking to you again. Sam, will you do something before I say something?
0: It's called I'll Blow You a Kiss in the Wind. A little guitar.
2: (laughs)
1: follow vegas never sleeps on all social media platforms including twitter facebook and instagram and thanks for listening today this is steven matchy reminding you vegas never sleeps greece is cheap but the airfare costs a fortune paris not much closer and again airfare
3: what about puerto vallarta let's face it flying anywhere is just too expensive wait
1: what's this
0: travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-430-7923. 800-430-7923. 800-430-7923. That's 800-430-7923.
3: If you are trying to quit drinking or doing too many drugs, listen to me. You don't know me and we'll never meet. They'll immerse you into a 30-day program to replace your old habits with new habits and totally change your life. And if you have PPO, private health insurance, the entire program may be covered. Fix your problem right now before it gets any worse. Get clean.
0: Call now and learn more. 800-537-3908. 800-537-3908. 800-537-3908. That's 800-537-3908.